What up? This is Dart Adams, and this is episode 66 of Dart Against Humanity. I just want to come out and say it. I think the last episode of Dart Against Humanity pretty much sucked. Um, I didn't know what I was doing going in. I didn't have a game plan going in. I was like, I need to record an episode. The first three times I recorded it, I start over. I started over because I didn't have a clear idea exactly what I wanted to do. Then I just got on a roll, and it's like I just started talking about various things. And I knew that the episode was trash when it was over and I uploaded it. And I realized I didn't even talk about the obvious thing that happened that past week. I got into this long protracted beef and argument on Twitter about the same thing everybody else was talking about at the time, which was the whole uh, article that John Karamanica wrote saying that Drake normalized uh, singing and rap. Now, that was an extremely ahistorical take. Not only was it extremely ahistorical, but it was, um, as far as history, even the re- recent history is concerned, it was inaccurate. Um, the fact of the matter was that there was never really a time past the 90s, the early 90s, where singing and rap wasn't normalized. Some of the best most well-received, most prominent hit makers sung and rapped. Whether they were established, big names who sold a lot of records, or just ones that had hits here and there. That was their method of getting the hit. Simply Ease Play My Funk blew up because she sang and rapped. Now everybody want to play my funk. One of the reasons why um, Bone Thugs and Harmony had such a great run is because they were able to rap and harmonize, which is something that they kind of took from what Freestyle Fellowship was doing, who were like the kings of the whole um, good life L.A. hip hop scene. They were like the guys at the top. So they were the most prominent dudes, even before they had their major label um, debut. They had songs on mixtapes all up and down the East Coast, and they were in the West. And people are like, um, so there's the same, there's the thing we know that we feel Bone Thugs and Harmony pretty much got their style, a lot of it, or their inspiration um, from Freestyle Fellowship. And a lot of people are like, how is that even possible? You have to remember that there was a time when Easy E himself, who was owner of Ruthless Records, uh, was behind a compilation of artists that were at The Good Life. So Easy e was familiar with The Good Life. Everybody was familiar with The Good Life. If you were in the West Coast or California, LA, what have you, you The Good Life was big. For, the, for God's sakes, there was a TV show called South Central where they made a fake Good Life, a place called the Ujima. Everybody knew about The Good Life. It was in every music magazine. Everybody was talking about it. It was a big deal. So there was no way around it. So if Easy e was there, if everybody was there, if, if Ice Cube was there, all these artists were there, the next thing you know, they come out in their style, em, emulates or imitates what's hot at the good life. Come on, we know. So you have them. But then again, if you go even more recent, you have um, cats like, so Drake, right? But before Drake... There was the Kid Cudi, a kid named Cudi era, you know. Before that, you had 
Cats like Chaos and Canon and Socrates singing and rhyming at the same time that were popular. Superstar Volume Zero, I mean, Part Zero was hot. You know, Canon was always doing something hot. Socrates had big, uh, big black Lincoln. Before that, he was even singing and rhyming. He would rhyme and then he would be in. um, uh, What's her name? Nelly Furtado's band is like a background singer and like a vote and like a vocalist straight up singing, singing. If you go back and look at her video for like. Look back at her videos. He's in them because he's part of her group. It wasn't weird. Dude singing. Devin the Dude would sing and rhyme. You had Butch Cassidy singing and rhyming. You had so many people that were doing it before. I mean, shit. Wyclef was doing it regularly. Somebody please dial 911. I mean, he was even doing it on like the sweetest thing. There were so many people between... 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007, up to 2008, before So Far Gone came out in 2009, which followed the timeline of Kid Cudi's A Kid Named Cudi, and then uh, Kanye West biting what Kid Cudi did. He kind of absorbed him. Then he like Shang Tsunged him, and he like used his cell. He like absorbed his essence. And then put out 808s and Heartbreaks, which further inspired Drake to make So Far Gone. So you're following a timeline of Drake from Kanye, who took his shit from Kid Cudi. And Kid Cudi wasn't the only cat doing that at the time. There was a whole line of cats doing similar things. So at no point was it not normalized. So to say that... Drake normalized rapper singing and now everybody does it because of him. That's not true. And if you do think that and there were people that actually co-signed what he said, what he's saying is, no, he was wrong because there were plenty of cats. I was listening to Fonte and, and other cats do that from 2004 on like if Slim Kid Trey is doing it in 92 and 93 and 95, she says like at what point? If I'm hearing la 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 la, whoa, ah, if I'm seeing Wyclef John pull out a guitar while he's performing The Carnival, which is a huge fucking album in 1997, if I'm seeing Lauren Hill singing and rhyming when she performs a, a huge album in 1998, if I'm seeing Everlast pull out a guitar, you tell me what it's like. And he's rhyming and he has a guitar in 99, 2000. Then at what point was this weird or was it not normalized? If, if Wyclef John's doing his entire career, if Estelle's doing it in the UK, her career, if, um, uh, what's homegirl's name? Uh, Miss Dynamite. If Miss Dynamite's doing it her whole career, when is it? Weird, And she crossed over to America doing Miss Dynamite. Like when was it at when? When was it something that we were like, oh, my God, you can't sing and rap at the same time. When when did this happen? I mean, Tyrese was doing it. So that whole thing was it was it was ridiculous. 
Everybody was um, arguing online about that. I'm surprised that I didn't even address that. That was just really weird. Um, But also the thing that I was doing was I was doing work with my book and stuff like that. So I guess I was kind of um, distracted. And again, this is why you write shit down before you have discussions. It's like, why do you go in without a game plan? And then, like, sometimes I listen back to old episodes and I'm just like, it's not flowing. And I'm not going to re-record it and re-record it and re-record it and re-record it because I tend to overthink things. And sometimes I've done episodes where I was just like, I thought it was absolute trash. I go back and listen to it. I was like, wow, that episode was way better than I thought it was. Of course, living on the first floor, that's somebody. I probably didn't even need to see. I overthink. I probably didn't even address that. I'm not even sure you heard that because I heard it. I think you did. Anyway. So me working on the books or whatever and um, books, plural, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get one book out over here and set up another book over here. I want to try to do two books simultaneously and then set up a third book because I have so many ideas and so many things I've been um, researching and planning out. And I want 2020 to be the year where I'm just cranking stuff out because, again, I'm 44. I turn 45 next August. It's going to be 2020. I don't have much time to waste. I got 15 to 20 years to get all this stuff in my head out before it's a wrap. I always go low. I might have more time, but God knows what I'm going to be, what my body and what my mind is going to be like. In 20 years and 15 years. So let's get this out while I can still, why I still work at, at, at optimum at my highest speed, at my, at my peak. Let's get, that, let's get this going. Let's get the show on the road. I, I've, I've wasted a lot of time. I don't, okay, maybe I haven't wasted a lot of time, but I've lost a lot of time. That's a better one. I have an integrity and shit. Um, so another thing that I've, uh, that happened to me recently is that there was a huge debate again on Twitter about songs, you know, uh, music, uh, dirty songs, euphemisms, because somebody said that uh, R&B in the 90s wasn't as dirty. And we were like, what are you talking about? So people just kept coming out and like, this song was about this. This song was about this. And as, as per usual, what happened is, is it's a generational thing. The person who wrote that tweet was only of a certain age when they were growing up in the 90s. So they were completely oblivious to what songs were about, as opposed to later on in life. They were very aware of the sexual innuendo, nasty, dirty, filthy nature of music when they came of age. In the 90s, they were completely oblivious because they were too young. Now. Let me walk you through my experience. I was born in 1975. Again, older brother, six years older, older sister, eight years older, upstairs neighbors, family, friends uh, of my mom's from Alabama, two DJs, I believe 10 and 12 years older than me. So that meant that I was privy to things I should not have been privy to at a young age. We're talking between ages three and Six or seven? When did they move? Maybe three and eight. Because I don't think they weren't around by like 83. So somebody else was living upstairs. Okay. So yes. 
between the ages of three and eight, I am privy to things I'm not supposed to be. And then after that, it's over. 1984, there is no innocence left in this young man. There just isn't. Thanks to New Edition and Prince-related albums. I'll get into detail. 1984, uh, Purple Rain comes out. Purple Rain has a song on it called Darling Nikki. I'm sure you all know what happens in Darling Nikki. Nikki masturbates with a magazine. I didn't see the movie yet. They had seen the movie again. My brother, six years older, so eight years older. They had seen Purple Rain. My brother had a mustache. They thought he was older than he was. Um, I, what can I tell you? Um, he, he was tall, like six feet something. So they saw the movie. They understood what it was about. I'm hearing Darling Nikki because it's a Prince album. Everybody loves Prince. I've been listening to Prince since 1978. Didn't like him back then. 79. I'm, he's the dude. Now. Fast forward to Ice Cream Castle by The Time. There's a song called If the Kid Can't Make You Come. I think this song's funky. I like singing it. I'm singing it around the house. It's just me, them. Mom works late. If the kid can't make you come, nobody can. I'm singing it. Singing it. There's a horrified look on my brother and sister's faces. And they look at each other, then they look at me, and they're like, stop singing that song. I'm thinking to them, oh, damn, um, am I, is, I got the key wrong? Um, is my intonation wrong? Am I not putting enough soul in it? So I say, wait, let me, let me try. If the kid can't make you come. And I'm like grinding. I'm like doing it like, you know, I'm getting into it. I'm thinking that, yo, this sounds better now. They're like, stop singing that song. I'm like, why? Why should I not sing the song? They look at each other and like, do we need to go here again? Because my life was already changed. I don't know if I mentioned this on the previous podcast. Maybe I have. I've tweeted about it. That Bobby Brown explained to me the concept of not what a vagina is. I knew my mom was not going to like, baby, this is this is the human body. But he explained to me the concept of pussy. The concept, why, why men chase it, what it's about, why we, af- why we after it, why must I be like that, why must I chase the cat, is nothing but the Mac in me, or the dog in me, uh, depending on if you were a digital underground fan, or you came up with George Clinton first. I came up with George Clinton first, but I like to say the Mac in me, because that's a dope song by Digital Underground. Get into it. Now, anyway, um, they already are horrified at the fact that they couldn't stop Bobby Brown from um, being the person to break my brain first. So they're looking at each other really like, um, do you know what this song's about? I say what I think the song's about. I say, yes, the song. If the kid can't make you come. There are a bunch of guys after this woman and want to date her. And she and he's saying, if the kid, you don't want to go out because you don't want to go out with these men because they do nothing for you. They don't interest you in any way, shape or form. You'd rather stay home. And for some odd reason, I had the idea that when women didn't go out, they washed their hair. I think it was probably because of another Prince song or my sister washing her hair because she had a lot of hair stuff. I'm a kid. And um, they were like, no, 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 no. The song, If the Kid Can't Make You Come, isn't about being interesting enough to make a woman leave her house and go out with you. Damn, I was young. It's about making her come sexually making her climax 
That's what the song's about. So we don't want you singing that song because you shouldn't be singing that song. So you can enjoy the song all you want. Don't sing it because it's weird and it's you're a kid. I was eight going on nine. I was eight or nine at the time that this conversation was being had. I believe the album came out before. I turned nine. I still hadn't seen the movie. I didn't see the movie until it came out on VHS. Um, so I'm like, okay, because I've just been told again, something above my pay grade. And I'm like, all right. But then you have to remember the memory that I have now. I had then, but shorter life. But again, I, if I'm a human encyclopedia of music, right? I was the same thing then. People used to come up to me and like, hey, what's this song? Hey, what's this song? They used to quiz me on music. My brothers, my brother and sister's friends, the, the uh, James and Derek who lived above us, used to quiz me on this song. What's this song off um, Bust Out of L7? What's this song? They used to drop the needle. I know what that Rick James song is. Five seconds in. Like, I know what that shit is. Um, dance with me. I knew Mr. Policeman. What kid knows Mr. Police? Mr. Policeman. I knew when I heard a, 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 a time album versus when I heard a Stone City band record versus when I heard a slave record. If I heard, turn the party lights on, I'm running upstairs, turn on the party lights tonight. Like, that's my thing from growing up. That's why I do what I do now. And I'm going to talk about a project that I'm doing now that involves all that later on. But again, my mind flashed back to all the songs that I thought were about something else. And then it starts coming out. And I'm like, wait a minute. So Juicy Fruit. What's Juicy Fruit about? Juicy Fruit is not about some gum. And they like, um, no, nah, it isn't. No. And I'm like, wait. Love come down. Girl, you make my love. Love come down's dirty. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, wait, if love comes down is dirty, that means that come inside my love by Minnie Ripperton. That's a dirty song, too. Like, yeah, it is. And I'm like, then all of a sudden it starts flooding my brain. All the songs, the innuendos that I didn't get before that I would just sing these songs as a kid and I just hear them on the radio and somebody would play them and we just dance. And we're like, oh, yeah, this is the jam. Not realizing it's about filth. And, you know, of course, that takes you to I'll Take You There by the Staple Singers. And I'm like, that's still about heaven, right? And they're looking at me like, well, they think it is. They sing it about heaven, but other people think it's about something else. And then it was a whole nother level to me because it's like, wait, you can make a song that's about something else, but people will make it dirty. Holy shit. That's another level. That's another level. That's a whole nother level. So fast forward to when Stacey Lattisaw puts out a song called Every Drop of My Love. Every drop of it. 
talking about getting every last drop of your love. I'm snickering throughout the whole song, eyes watering, because all I can imagine is this song is about a woman squeezing a man's penis, trying to get all the semen out of it. Not about a love song, not about her her being in ecstasy that she's being loved so well by a partner that understands and appreciates her and she wants to get every single ounce of this love and appreciation. No, I'm thinking filth, flarn, filth at a young age because my brain's broken. Because I've seen the ones and the zeros of the matrix. Because Morpheus freed me. And now I know this shit is a whole simulation. And I downloaded all the kung fu to my brain. <sighs> sad, 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 really. And there was that conversation on Twitter, too. And then people were just saying, you ruined this song for me. You ruined this song for me. You ruined this song for me. And I'm smiling because everything got ruined for me on the day my brother and sister told me when I was enjoying a nice, normal, funky ass the Time album, which I didn't know they had already broken up, um, that it was filthy. Then I realized Prince made a lot of filthy. Oh, my God. Lady Cab Driver. Was I just too busy dancing to notice what the hell was going on in this song? God damn. This man is Filthy. Filthy. I love it. Erotic city. We can fuck it till the dawn. Make love until a cherry's gone. Something like that. Wasn't that the B-side? By the way, the best Prince B-side in my estimation of that era is 17 Days. Still one of my all-time favorite songs. Although she's always in my hair is up there. But 17 days. Why do I do this? Anyway, right? So today, I just came back from, I took a writing break. If you're watching, watch the YouTube videos, not YouTube. Watch the, um, the IG videos that I'm doing. It's a series and it's explaining something that I'm doing. I'm going to do another one, uh, I'm going to do another one. It's going to be about um, the protocols of sampling and what we learned as kids when we were digging between 92 and 94. I'm going to do a few of these. There's a reason. Follow. But anyway, um, I came back from at the ICA. The, um, it's a museum in the, sea, in the seaport. Um, they had the series and the next person in the series was Rakim. The first thing that they did on Rakim, I missed because I was busy writing these two damn books simultaneously, uh, is Rakim had a book event for his book. Um, and I, of course, missed it. I hated it. I missed it because it's at Harvard. And I like going to Harvard events and just looking everybody in the face like, yeah, hey. And I wanted to bring my book. And I didn't because I was busy writing two other books. And I've said that twice. And um, I finally got to go see Rockham at this the ICA today. Thing is that, you know, they were only going to be open till nine. The event ran long. It got packed. Um, 
he was late showing up. So it was a short panel. And then the last 45 minutes of the panel, they did like three questions. The last 45 minutes of the panel was uh, lined up hundreds of people to get to have Rockham sign something. And then they had to get the hell out the ICA at nine o'clock. And I'm already like, I got to get back home because I got more research and writing to do. Right. And then I got to record this podcast at midnight. So that was dope. Got to see Rockham talk. Uh, with the guy who wrote the book with him, he would have interviews, formulate the book, whatever, bam, books out. It's about creativity. I'm sure, you know, it's been selling really well. You can actually buy it at Amazon and everywhere else. Whereas if you go looking for my book at Amazon, it's not available at, at, at uh, one click. It's not available at add to cart. You got to buy it from a third party distributor. Hopefully next week this all be rectified and you can buy it again because it fucks me up because you can't just buy it on a one click during the holiday season. But hey, I'll get through it as good as whatever. Um, anyways, right. So. I was thinking about. How. They just announced that there's going to be a three part series on BET. About the history of Uptown MCA Records, which was Andre Harrell's record label and what happened there, what it meant, yada, yada, yada. Now, for those of you that weren't old enough to experience it firsthand, it was always Def Jam versus Uptown for the heart, souls and dance floors of black America, especially young black America. Def Jam be like, we got them. And Uptown be like, we got them. So Def Jam be like, we got the B-Boys. Uptown MCA was like, we got all the girls. Def Jam be like, we got all these hip-hop DJs. Uptown MCA be like, we got all the club DJs. And we got some of the hip-hop DJs too. Def Jam be like, we got the Latin Quarter. And we got the Rooftop. Uptown Shade was like, we got the Latin Quarter and the Rooftop too. They play your record, they play our record. So it was like this thing going back and forth. And then later when we get into the 90s, it was the thing of the um, getting into the movies. So Def Jam got into the movies like, we got a movie, Strictly Business. I'm No, no, we got a movie. Um, What the hell was that fucking movie called? Um, The movie about the news. And it was not T.K. Carter. It was a dude that ended up playing um, Kyle, not Kyle, um, Kyle Barker. He was like the news guy in Atlanta. I remember what the hell that movie was called. I could Google it, but why? And then they had Strictly Business, which was originally called Go Natalie. So it was always Def Jam versus Uptown. Def Jam versus Uptown. We're going to start making clothes. We're going to start doing... um. We're going to start going here. We're going to start signing R&B acts. And Uptown MCA is like, we got Mary J. Blige. We we got Heavy D and the boys. We got Father MC. Treat them like they want to be treated. You know, Def Jam's like, we got EPMD and we got um, Nice and Smooth. Fuck with us. We got Nikki D. Nikki D, they fucked up Nikki D's whole thing in 1991. Look it up. Anybody could tell you what happened. They screwed that whole thing up. We got Slick Rick. He's in jail. We still got Slick Rick. Ain't he in jail? We still got Slick Rick. 
You know, so like it was always a back and forth between Uptown and Def Jam, especially since Andre Harrell at one point used to work with Def Jam and Rush, and then he came over. And then you see like how the business and everything shifted where it was always like an arms race between Def Jam and Uptown. If you didn't notice that arms race between Def Jam and Uptown between like 1987 all the way up through 1994 or 5, I envy you. Because it was always seemed like it was like Def Jam, Uptown, Def Jam, Uptown, Def Jam, Uptown. I used to joke later on that there should, there should have been a retro video game called Def Jam versus Uptown, like uh, Marvel versus Capcom, or SNK versus Capcom or what have you, you know, and you saw like Def Jam, the fighting game, and I was like, I felt like there should have been a Def Jam versus Uptown fighting game, that would have been fire. Puff Daddy come in and, you know, Puffy come through and, like, be your, like, assist character or some shit. Throw some extra spice on something. Yeah, yeah. Take that. Take that. But it's what it was. It's what it is. But, yeah, I'm actually looking forward to that. I don't... I need to look at who's actually involved, the creative team behind that. That can actually be fire. Um, So... One thing that I'm learning from doing this, like the book research that I'm doing is I'm going back through what made us arrive at this. So one of the things that I'm doing, doing is that I'm delving back through the early days of the digging space. I call the new diggers between 92 and 94 when uh, Lina notes and album credits finally listed sample sources for the first time and what it made us do and how it made us all learn more about music as a byproduct. Well, it kind of like forced us into it, some of us, because first we just wanted to know where, what this record was. or Oh my God, this is what that record was the whole time. And then a lot of us were finally getting of age where we wanted to make our own music and we were getting equipment or had access to somebody's or maybe we were able to scrounge up enough money to go to the studio and now we want to make music. So what do you do? You start looking for uh, stuff to make music with. You start looking for sample sources. You start looking for records. And in that process, what you do is you learn about music because how can you make music if you're looking for music to make music with if you don't know anything about it? It doesn't make sense. You have to learn. So one of the things that I was discussing, I discovered was that by trial and error, a lot of people just figured out and learned about certain labels, certain artists, certain sounds. And then they just like fell into this rabbit hole of eras of music and they worked themselves back and kind of created this timeline or this continuum that branched off into other things. So you talk to somebody like the, like the Beat Nuts, the Beat Nuts will tell you about records and players and session, session musicians and people that they met. And engineers and shit like that. And you're just like, wow, how do they know all this? Well, they're the beat nuts. So you can't get into the music without getting into the music. 
because you're going to make the music. You're going to learn more about the music of the people who made it, who 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 did this, who did what, uh, who played this guitar, what, who did this with the bass. And then you have your own studio session. So you learn about studio sessions. It's just a nonstop dis- uh, thing of music discovery. And it's fascinating. So one of the things that I remembered was that getting to this space was realizing that when something as simple as I want horns. What does that mean? Think about this. It's 1993. You're listening to a Diamond D, a Diamond D produced record. You hear horns. You hear a DJ Premier beat. You hear these horns. Pete Rock. Uh, uh, Tribe Called Quest. So it's Q-Tip or Ali Shaheed Muhammad, somebody. Like, where are they getting this these horns from. So now you go out looking for horns. Based on your age and based on your prior knowledge of music already going in, you already have an idea of where to look or you don't. So again, age and birth order has a lot to do with history, has a lot to do with this particular space and digging, right? So there was a lot of times that you needed assistance from someone older or someone even older. What I'm going to explain. I remember explaining to someone young that if you're looking for horn sounds and you're going to a band that you know has a horn section, make sure you're getting albums from when they still had a horn section. So, okay, perfect example Cameo. Cameo used to have 14 members, then I think they had 10, then it was down to five, then it was down to three. Not 100% that was the order, but I, I'm, I'm fairly sure. And there was a sequence of albums that they came out with where you would pull up the album cover and see, oh, they got less members, they got less members. Knights of the Sound Table, you see all the people there. There's a full bunch of Knights of the Sound Table. Next, Cameosis. Was anybody even on the cover of Cameosis? But then by the time you get to the, like, the She Strange album, and then you get down to like the album with Candy and then you get down to the album Word Up. Ain't no more horn section. That's Larry Blackman and homie using, you know, keyboards and drum machines and synths and shit. So if you're going to go look for a record with horns, you have to go to the era where bands that had horn sections still had horn sections or find bands that specialized in horns, brass, what have you. Go to the disco era, especially. Um, the disco funk era. Go there. Fuck with brass construction. Look for BT Express. Look for the name Randy Muller. Go ham. Look for uh, the horny horns. Fred Wesley find the P-Funk records where they got the horn arrangements. There are things that you go to. Look for jazz records. Learn names. Learn session. Learn sidemen. Find the records where that person got off and was able to do their thing. Just going to send you down another rabbit hole or a jazz K-hole. I like to say, because this is when you just start realizing that, oh, wow, this person played on this record. These people played on this record. This this lead person played on this. And then you just you start understanding and then you figure out the era 64 to 68 uh, 
69 to 72. What happened? 1973 to 1978. You know, you start figuring things out. 74 to 79. And then you start like form, formatting it from there. But it has to start from you asking somebody or somebody telling you. And a lot of times it was us. One of the things that bridged us to the older cats was we would go to record stores and we would ask questions. And these cats that probably didn't really mess with rap or hip hop because of they felt no connection to it were kind of relieved that, well, at least these young people are learning about the music and they're interested in the music now. So now we speak a common language. And that's one of the things that opened up a lot of guys like the Boston Bobs of the world and a lot of the older musicians to the younger cats because they weren't just knuckleheads using turntables and scratching with no regard for the music that came before them. They actually appreciated it because they grew up with it. So it gave them a completely different um, understanding of what was going on with us. And I think that that was beautiful. And... One of the things that helped us out was, you know, being young kids that made mixtapes early on, recording off the radio, recording directly from vinyl or dubbing off cassettes. Usually it was vinyl. I don't remember having a lot of cassettes pre-80s, 85. 86, really. 84, 85, there were a few cassettes. It was still mostly vinyl. 86 was when started getting tapes. That's largely because my brother had a job. And 86 was the beginning of like the rap golden era when there were a significant amount of cassette tapes and rap coming out for the first time. So it made sense to buy cassettes. Then later on, my big sister had like a really nice job and lived home. So, you know. She could buy CDs, which were considered a luxury item. I mentioned this before. So she's buying CDs in like the late 80s, 88, 89. We're looking at her like, and we had just got a CD player thanks to Crackheads and Boosters and thanks to everybody knowing Miss Barbara. I love y'all. Salute. Um, And so, you know, we got a CD player now and it's just like, ooh, this, this is, this, this song hit. Uh, yes, I fucks with this. I, I like hearing the kid and play too hype and Big Daddy Kane, um, Long Live the Kane in a CD on CD form. And then my sister goes crazy. So I was buying house and, you know, fucking uh, Mr. Lee get busy. And then she bought Technotronic. And I just looked at her like it was late 1989. I was looking at her like right around um, Thanksgiving, Christmas, 1989, going into 1990. I'm just like. And she's jamming to it. Get up, get up, get busy, do it. I want to see you party. And I'm just like, yo, fuck, I hate Technotronic. I hate these people. I hate MC Eric. I hate Yakid K. And I hate Philly, especially because she's not singing. But she's on the covered album. Makes sense. Anyway, right? So... Here we are. Just trying to figure out what to do next in terms of where the music's going and learning about it at a crucial time that we later found out was actually a golden era and we were a part of it without realizing it. We were just trying to like figure shit out. Now, last bit of uh, news. And business. Ego trips 
book of rap lists either had its 20th anniversary or is about to have its 20th anniversary. I'll explain. If you go on um, Amazon and search and look at Ego Trip's book of rap lists, it'll tell you December 3rd, 1999 is the release date. That's a Friday. You look up somewhere else, it says December 5th, 1989. That's a Sunday. You look somewhere else, it tells you December 7th, 1999. That's a Tuesday. Did the book come out on a Friday or a Tuesday? I will tell you that I know the book did come out in December 1999 because I discovered this researching on um, CMJ when they were talking about the book about to come out. So I was trying to find out the exact release date for it. But in any event, this is it. This is my worn dog-eared copy of Ego Trip's Book of Rap List. I'm in the kitchen. Why did I tell you that? You don't care. Um, that's me putting it down. Why am I telling you what I'm doing? Why am I narrating? You hear plop. This is me putting it down. Shit, Nick. Shit. Anyway, um, so St. Martin's Griffin, New York. To Matt Reed, thank you for showing us. Everything is doable. That's Matt Do Reed. Rest in peace. Um, it has the chapters. Acknowledgement, Ted Bano's forward. Ted Bano, not a real person. Foundation, lyrics, DJs, production, live, names, broadcasting, body moving. I skipped something because something's in my hand. Okay. Clans, posses, crews, and clicks. It was written. Record labels, art, film, cheddar, sports, in full gear. We got stunts, blunts, and hip-hop, beef, the realness, race, awards, bonus beach charts, the Monkey Academy, 10 reasons why rap will never die. That's on page 352. How many pages is this goddamn book? 352. That's a big-ass book. The Monkey Academy is pretty much just telling you everybody who was involved with the book. I saw um, Chairman Mao uh, post this. For those of you that don't know, Chairman Jefferson Mao is one of the uh, big influences in my life and in getting into um, hip hop writing. His bio in here mentions him um, being a truck driving production assistant on the New York commercial filmmaking scene. A New York University graduate is an aspiring DJ. 1992 was chance meeting with a young, ambitious um, publishing entrepreneur film intern named Sasha Jenkins introduced an absurd solution to his fiscal roles. Woes. Entering the world of music journalism, Mal began contributing to Jenkins' Beatdown magazine in exchange for complimentary promotional copies of hip-hop records. He couldn't believe his luck. Mal eventually exploited his writing scam so well that he actually began earning rent money with his new vocation. While becoming a fundamental cog within Jenkins and partner Elliot Wilson's Boo! Next publishing foray, Ego Trip, Mal enlightened Rolling Stone spin entertainment weekly and vibe but his critical critical musings amongst the most noteworthy assignments his guest editorship of rap pages acclaimed dj issue in april 1996 and his profile of the notorious big in april 1996 for the cover of the source shortly began the rapper before the rapper's untimely death currently ego trips editor-in-chief and vibe writer at large mal uh he did the record report with uh bobito Mal can st- can't, still can't believe he possesses a job that doesn't require him to sweep floors and chauffeur ad agency assholes. We're not clucking long but gratifying hours at ET's NYC HQ. 
He can be found in a record store near you digging for archival additions to his now 20,000 piece strong record library. Sasha Jenkins is another guy who is inspiration to me. Uh, Chairman Mao, Chairman Jefferson Mao is a big inspiration to me because he came out of the Boston metro area and he moved to New York and became a DJ and a journalist, which was what we aspired to be. The other cat that left Boston, went to New York and became a journalist was Torre. But we ain't like Torre because Torre is a fucking cornball. Um, so beat down uh, the source rap pages. Uh, anybody wrote for the Village Voice, anybody wrote anything about hip hop or rap that was viable, you know, and seemed like they actually understood what was going on. We it inspired us to want to do the same, even though I didn't realize I wanted to do journalism. I wanted to rap back in the day. <clears throat> fun, 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 fun. So um, and salute to Sasha Jenkins, too, man. Uh, that dude is really instrumental and to a whole lot of things. And the Ego Trip book of rap lists kind of really kicked off the list mania era. I think that this book and another book, that Vice book about fashion, kind of changed the way people wrote online and the whole blog era. Songs that end with explosions. Who was thinking about shit like this? Songs with monkeys. Can't get enough of that monkey stuff. A constipated monkey. Gorilla. Gorilla pimping. Gorillas ain't gangsters. Gorillas in the mist. Let the monkey out. Monkey off my back. Plant the apes. Put the monkey in it. Primates and stitches. 25 bumping car songs. Benzabima. The booming system. Born to roll. Car harpers. Cars, cars, cars with the boom. At Latrim. Crazy about cars. Cutlass, Monte Carlos, and Regals. Dipping. Drive by Miss Daisy. Fuck my car. If ain't a caddy, it's a car. it ain't a car. Jeep ass nigga. Jeeps, Lex, Coombas. It's the Jeeps. The Lex Coops Beamers in the bins. Let me ride my hoopty on them things. I'm riding on them things. Rolling in my six foot. Sitting on chrome. Sob story. I know you and you know me. Two dope boys in the Cadillac. It's just another West Side story. You're gonna get your suckers in the back. I know you hate my 98. You're gonna get yours. Ego Trip's 15 favorite goddamn Christmas songs. Now, y'all know I my least favorite genre of music is Christmas music. It's played for a month every year and then discarded right after uh, we hit Christmas. So December 26th, nobody playing Christmas music no more. Nobody cares. But if you worked in retail, they play Christmas music all the goddamn time. That's why I hate it. Got shoved down my throat. I hate being forced to do things I don't want to do. Um... You got the Ego Trip Achievement Awards. It's just crazy. It's this book 20 years old. Top 10 Lyrical Mexican References. What? 28 scathing songs about racist punk police. Why 28? Okay, so we go to charts, right? Hip Hop's Greatest Singles by Year. You got 1979, 1980, 81, 82. Just going all the way up to. Now, here's the thing about this, about this book, right? It never got updated. So it stops at 1998. The book was released in December 1999. Stops in 98. Hip hop's greatest albums by year. Now, one of the things about this book that people do not really talk about enough is that they were omissions. There's no. Chubb Rock's the one. 
because they stop at 25. They stop at 25, forgetting how many albums came out per year. So like Chub Rock's The One isn't listed. And I remember looking for it. I was like, how can they not have Chub Rock's The One? That was easily one of the top albums of that year. 1994, they stopped at 25, which is fucking criminal. Criminal. 1995, 25, criminal. 96, 25, criminal. 1997, the first year of the underground backpack. This gave me the idea to do my underground backpack list. 1997, 25. 1998, 25. No 1999. So this book was pretty much the skeleton for a lot of people who started getting into journalism because it was like, what can I use as a starting off point? Like, what can I use as a, as a kicking off point to give me an idea of what to write about? And then it was also a resource book. You know, think about who were the first Rappers that made TV commercials, um, records that were broken by the Stretch Armstrong and Bob Beto show, um, rap personalities who appeared in Sprite commercials. This became a resource. This became a source book. People would use this. First rappers to go gold and platinum. People would use this. Why? Because there was no searchable database for the RIAA back then. You had this book. This book was all important. That's why it's so dog-eared. That's why it's been used to death. That's why it has hand smudges all over it. I've cracked this fucking book open several times. But I will tell you that the one thing that I always noted about this book, it was limited. Because they only had so much time, they only had so much space. They missed key singles. They missed key albums. It stopped in 1998 when it was released in late 1999. It was just like... Nobody ever said, hey, let's do an amended version of this book. Let's do a 15th anniversary. Let's do a 20th anniversary. Let's add more stuff to it. Why? Because I don't even think the people at um, Ego Trip like they even fuck with each other. I don't even think Elliot talks to um, Sasha. I don't think Elliot and Sasha talked. I don't think that uh, uh, Sasha and um, Jefferson Mao fuck with Elliot. So it's what it is. I'm not 100% sure. Don't quote me on that. I just feel like it. I wouldn't fuck with Elliot. I don't fuck with Elliot now. Not saying I have beef with Elliot. Fuck it. I got beef with Elliot. Now, um, I just realized that I've been talking too long. It's been 50 minutes. I didn't want to go 50 minutes. I want to stop talking. Why am I still talking? Why don't I just stop? Did I say fuck Elliot Wilson? Yeah, I did. Fuck Elliot Wilson.